Coming up on this episode of Belief Hole. Ah, yes. Who doesn't love the joyful escape that is the amusement park? But beneath the din of cheerful screams and creaking coasters, what darkness lurks? From aviator apparitions at Universal Studios to the cursed and sacred grounds of Lake Shawnee. And with a final stop, at Disney's dark side. <laughs> we explore some of the creepiest accounts from the happiest places on Earth. So please, Beliefflings, fasten your safety belt and keep your arms and legs inside the ride at all times as we seek out dark amusements and embark through the treacherous gates of the Belief Hole. Sasquatch, homunculus, alien races, Satanism in Hollywood, MK Ultra, Tartaria. There's like a whole. I've been watching this one guy. Close like, the door, in. Jury, in. close your door. What's the uh, inner earth disagreements? Ghost Dad. <laughs> I like that movie. Dogman, Bohemian Grove, magicians are demons, specters, and spirits, spirit summonings, paralysis, strange disappearances, sky whale phenomena, yes. alternative history, shadow people. Shh, quiet! I'm trying to say words with the mouth. It's getting dicey out there. Poltergeists. That's cool. And Naki. What is the moon? <laughs> Elf towers. I would never talk about. That's old. Why to cover-ups? Apocalyptic catastrophe. Vampire. Well, hello, hello, everybody. Well, hello, hello. Welcome back to another episode of Belief Hole. Yes. I am John. I'm Chris. And I'm Jeremy. And today, boy, do we have a show for you. Oh, I can't wait for this. That's right. It's about time, guys. It's cold out there in some yeah. of the places, you know? Time to think about some nicer days coming up. That's yeah. right. Let's take a break. Let's Some escape spooky a nicer days. Spooky nicer days, yes. With things being cold out there in the frigid lands of where we are, Ohio, and the world seemingly coming to an end, I think it's time that we all escape. Yes. Escape your reality. To Believe Hole Park. You're going back. That's right. So for those of you who are not expansion members, we actually launched this, I guess you could call it a series, part one of this, Dark Amusements. Haunted theme parks, cursed rides, this kind of thing. The first episode was great. You guys should definitely check it out if you're not members yet. We went deep into Disney, dark Disney lore, some of the famously haunted attractions, and that was tons of fun. But today, today we're going to get into some some of the maybe the lesser known stories when it comes to haunted theme parks, cursed amusements. Yes. So I'm pretty stoked about it. Are we going somewhere warm? Yes. We are. Well, depends. Depends on which place we go first. You can go to Hollywood, California or West Virginia first. West Virginia is a little chilly. As long as it's in the summertime, I don't care. It can be anytime we want. Exactly. John. Theme parks live in the summer. It's true. That's right. I don't think there are, many of them are open in the winter, unless it's like, like below the equator or something. Yeah, unless there's like a ski park. I guess that would just be a ski resort. <laughs> <laughs> Not an amusement park. <laughs> That's true. It is amusing, though. That would be kind of interesting, though, to do an amusement park in the winter. Oh, actually, this I didn't even think about this, but we have uh, someone on Instagram that communicates with the show, Cool Girl. She's trying to start a theme park based what? on... Oh, that's right. Based on, I think, regional paranormal and cryptids and such. Mysteries and cryptids. It looks awesome. I mean, she's a very talented artist. She's stuff. a theme park designer. Yeah, we'll have to link that in the show notes. A, th- a theme park designer? That's yeah. a real thing? Yeah, apparently. Well, someone's got to do it. That's right. <laughs> I guess there's probably a lot of people involved. It's not just one person. Yeah, I don't know how much... <laughs> That'd be awesome. At what stage she, she's at. I mean, but it's just it's just really interesting. I'll put it in the show notes because I, I would definitely be going there. Yeah. There's a whole like concept of like a... Well, we won't get into it now. Maybe cut that out because I don't remember exactly, but... <laughs> Scratch everything I just said. I think. I mean, would there be rides there? Yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure. I mean, I don't know to what degree it for. I mean, like you'll hear today in a lot of these examples of amusement parks, it's, it might start off small, but right. then grow. Mm-hmm. And depending on what's happened in these places at these parks, what kind of tragedy might have existed previous to the purchasing of the park, the land for the park, what kind of bloodshed might have befell the earth, you might get some pretty nasty hauntings. And cursed places. Well, we talked, remember on our episode in the expansion. Not that's going to happen to us, but we talked about how <laughs> the weird dynamic of the happiest places on earth, these fun parks, but then the contrast of the darkness, and also how 
being on a ride and or being in a fun house or a spook house, whatever you call them, that a spook house, the joy comes from the fear, right? And what is this? How does this yeah, interplay with the like astral being realm? Scared. You know, yeah, yeah, but that's a good point. The, we always talk about like fear eaters, right? In the astral I don't realm, think that stuff's real anymore. Okay, cool. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Have a good day, guys. <laughs> but the idea, like we talk about, like that feeding on the fear, and are there things drawn to that kind of dark energy? We talked about that a lot on the show. But yeah, the interesting idea of the coalescing of this kind of exciting fear at places like theme parks, you know, roller coaster rides where you're supposed to be scared, you know, you're safe, right? And it's also that, that I forget there's a word for that. I think it's a, maybe a, a, a Norwegian word. We've got a word for everything over there. Right. It's like, you know, when you're in a tent or you're inside a warm cabin on a snowy day. You're, you're talking about the cozy word. It means yeah. to be like cozy inside when it's cold outside. Basically, you're thing. secure from the element. You know that you're safe, even though you're in a place of perceived danger. Like a roller coaster. Once you or trust if you're the coaster. In like a bunker during that's World a War. That's l- a little scarier. Heard <laughs> <laughs> tornado shows. There's actual doom. Yeah, but that's a little worse. You know what I mean? Like You're going real extreme here, John. What? I, I don't understand. <laughs> you know, when you're camping and it's like raining outside and it's kind of peaceful because like you, you're you safe and cozy. Okay, that's, that's pretty minimal get, though. Yeah, I think you're dressing what it. What do you mean that's minimal? I mean, that's like the word you're talking about, Norwegian or Danish or whatever it is. It's like cozy inside with a cup of hot chocolate right. when it's snowing outside. Not like, you know, you're safe even when you're dropping 400 feet at 10. Yeah, but it's relatively safe because it's a very small chance. I get where you're going. I get where you're going. Bad. Yeah, you're protected. You're, you feel safe and secure as long as you trust the roller coaster, in the, mm-hmm. which, you know, sometimes there are situations. I get where, what you're saying. I was just going to say, quick fun fact, John. I've discovered in our research, the first amusement park dates back to 1500s in Denmark. Really? I mean, I didn't grab the notes on this, but I just thought it was kind of an interesting little tidbit of information uh-huh. anecdote the, the oldest amusement park is from the 1500s and it was because there was a water spring that was found near copenhagen Bakken something and uh people would go out there to drink because the copenhagen water was pretty rotten mm-hmm. or pretty just polluted at that point right but because it became so popular people would come and they would sell wares and they were called hawkers and they would sell things so hawkers. Became, yeah so and then they would have people come out selling food you would have games eventually they developed it into this thing and that became like the first amusement park oh weird just because of that water spring it naturally carnies? manifested yeah, what became Carnies and Fair Folk? Dutch Carnies. Were they, was it Dutch that you said? Uh, Denmark. Carney Danish. folk. Carney folk. I've met some Carnies. Interesting you know, people. In Kenneth Holden, you mean? Yes. When was this? Oh, it's a whole world. <laughs> you know, you can save that story because come time for Canal Days this year, guys, which is our, our homeland of Kenneth Holden, Ohio. Canal Days is this festival down there. And I think around that time we should do like a freaky carnival episode yeah classic creepy stories and stuff creepy carnivals and like uh 40 and fairgrounds or something real cool let's do it what today jeremy where are you starting off in this wonderful world so today we're going to dip into some exciting freaky thrilling if you will thrill rides of the paranormal and mysterious we're going to be going to hollywood california universal studios backlot where we may have the ghost of an aviator who haunts the grounds Mm. and that has some real history to it an actual explanation for that reality that's an interesting story We're going to be going to West Virginia, where there is the infamous and abandoned, well, I guess you could say defunct because people are still preserving the park, but it's an abandoned amusement park called uh, Lake Shawnee Amusement Park. That has some fascinating tales, and the land there is allegedly cursed, and for good reason, and that's a fascinating tale as well. A place you can go now, actually, if you're interested. So that's going to be really interesting to get into. Yeah, here it's a hot spot for people into the paranormal now mm-hmm. because of the, what's been going on there. Exactly. And you cannot obviously talk about this stuff. Like I said, we did a lot of Disneyland, Disney World type stuff in our expansion episode, part one of The Dark Amusements. So check that out, guys. That link will be in the show notes. But it would not be an episode, I feel like, of Dark Amusements without touching a little bit on the happiest place on earth and some real encounters, terrifying tales that people have experienced at the park. So we're going to be getting to that later on in this episode. Where's that? That is Disneyland. Oh, there you go. I said that. You said the happiest place on earth, but you didn't clarify. Everybody knows. That's not my happiest place. Okay. But yeah, if you guys want to hear more, like we got into deep lore about the uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, the alleged skeletons that exist in the ride, real human cadavers, if you will, the bony kind. It's all underneath of us. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> It sure all is. the time, the dead people. Weird. We're all, it's all around us. Walking they will just be bones. Exactly. Bones and dust. And that actually ties into... Uh, it's fun. Shawnee. Could be sooner than you think. That's very true. Let's focus on that. <laughs> <laughs> supposed to get away from that thought with this escapism. We also talked about experiences from people who worked at the parks, and we're going to have some of those accounts too, right? Towards the end of the story. That's what I was saying. Yeah. True tales of the people that have experienced just strange phenomena, ghostly apparitions and visitations, things moving, the feeling of being watched. Are there watchers? potentially astral parasites gripped atop the buildings of Walt Disney's famous world. 
absorbing yes. the energy. There's a little anecdote about that. So a lot of interesting stuff coming up. We also have a Mothman connection we'll be getting to at the end. Yes, we, we do. We got a lot of interesting stuff, guys. So buckle up. Make sure your ride is securely fashioned. Keep your hands inside the cart at yes. all times. Get ready. <laughs> and before we jump into it, Chris, what's coming up on today's expansion episode? Ah, yes. That you can access if you are a member of the Beliefhole. Go to Beliefhole.com and click on the red sign up for the expansion button. Do it. And you will experience this. Do it now. This expansion episode is going to be one for the books. Paranormal Police Encounters. Oh. You heard me right. Bonafide tales of the strange and unusual told by the men and women in blue. I was going to call it Paranormal Police Encounters, The Thin Boo Line. <laughs> wow. <laughs> a little cheesy. Super fun. Uh, maybe I'll keep it there. Um, but this is going to be great. Too. I found some awesome stories from a multitude of places, all right from the officers who had these experiences. So we're going to be looking at this really good book by a retired officer in Vietnam vet, Lauren W. Christensen. He's got a story on Cops True Encounters with the Paranormal. He's a really fascinating guy. He's trained people for combat. He worked at police intelligence. It's going to be a great episode. We're going to touch on everything from your typical paranormal ghostly encounters to demonic activity, to creature type experiences, to Ooh. UFOs. Well, there's some really good ones. Some really good ones. It's from a listener too, right? We do have one from a listener too, from a, a tribal police officer near Skinwalker Ranch. That's a fascinating story. So we'll be getting into that. And I love this idea. I've wanted to do this sort of episode for a long time, because if you think about the idea of people who are recently deceased, who have recently moved on in that moment is when you have a lot of people witnessing some sort of apparition, usually the most intense activity, violent experiences of death. And with this episode, we're going to be talking about police experience, obviously, because they're the first on the scene in a lot of cases. Exactly. They're by themselves sometimes with the body. Right. And a lot of times you'll have someone on scene arriving. You might see a person who looks like they would be a witness to the accident right. and they actually are well, the person who's spoiled the stories, Jared. Well, I mean, that's just an example of a kind of story. Right. I don't know the ones you're going to be Surprisingly typical with these experiences. Which would make sense, too, you know, before they realize. So join us in the expansion for that. It's going to be probably one of our best. Absolutely. Now let's get into it, guys, huh? Let's do it. Let's head on over to Universal Studios Hollywood. I, I want to go. Doesn't that sound nice? Yes. Orlando is awesome. I've never been to the Hollywood one. I don't know if I would prefer it over Universal. I think anywhere you go, though, it's going to be pretty amazing compared to right now. In Ohio. I don't know. I prefer the icy tundra. <laughs> of Ohio. I think for an adult, too, Universal Studios over Disney seems a little more exciting. Well, let's go on over, huh? Hollywood, California, Universal Studios. This is Frank's Frightful Flight, the ghost of the Universal Studios Hollywood backlot. Now, you may or may not have heard of this. This story actually begins kind of in the middle of the timeline here. So there's a beloved attraction at Universal Studios Hollywood and Universal Orlando called Halloween Horror Nights. Now, initially, it started as like a Horror Nights event, but before this became a regular occurrence and really got underway, it was stopped because of a tragic, tragic event on October 31st, Halloween night, 1986, when a young Universal Studios employee, his name was Paul, was killed tragically by a tram. It was called the Terror Tram at the time. He was basically a, a part of the scare crew, right? Supposed to jump out and scare people passing oh, yeah. by. Got stuck between two trams and was crushed oh. and dragged 100 feet. Oh, it's sad. Super, super sad. Horrible. So they park put the Halloween Horror Nights or basically any Halloween events on hiatus for six years. The next part of our story picks up in 2015. Enter John Murdy, the creative director responsible for the grand vision of the attraction of Halloween Horror Nights and Hollywood Universal Studios. One night, long after dark, John Murdy is exploring the backlot with his uh, team member, Casey. They were scouting on the back lot for areas that could be included as part of the terror tram, which is that ride we spoke about previously. Now, at this time, no people were around this portion of the park in this time of night. So he was surprised and startled when he started hearing this diabolical giggling. <laughs> just like that. Yeah, not, not just giggling, but diabolical. Diabolical. I'd be very surprised. Now, at the sound of this, John takes off, leaving Casey behind. So Casey's like, come on, we got we to gotta fear what this is doesn't seem as startled, convinces John to come back. You know, this could be a security guard. Um, they don't see anybody around. And then again, the diabolical giggling, this time much closer. <laughs> they both bolt, run. So certain that this was some unearthly kind of event because no one was around. They couldn't explain, you know, you've heard these stories when you have a voice right in your ear, get out or something. Yeah that kind of closeness to you, there must be some explanation. 
So the story gets out next day at work. The other members of staff were confiding in them after hearing about their account of their own unusual experiences in Universal Studios' backlot. Now, one of these accounts that stuck out to Murdy was the sighting of a man wandering near the Psycho House wearing a vintage aerial outfit, complete with a leather helmet and jacket. Now, according to what he heard, a number of employees reported seeing a similarly dressed man over a period of years. What made this significant is that the sightings were in the same area where Murdy and Casey heard the giggling. Weird. So this puts a little bug in Murdy's research brain, and he decides to search the Universal Archives, searching for any films that may have cast members as pilots, because, you know, it makes you think of Lon Chaney's ghost, right? Famously wearing the costume and haunting the soundstage of where the Phantom of the Opera was shot. So oh, right. like, oh, this could be that kind of thing, right? It's kind of a classic idea. But so the diabolical giggling coming from a man who was playing an aviator? That's what he thinks. Okay. So as he's searching the records and the archives, after hours of that research, he finds an answer. A Los Angeles Times article from March 17th, 1915, the opening weekend of Universal Studios. And here's the headline. Dash to Earth ends life and its hope. Aviator who would fly as Beachy flew falls to the same fate. In motion picture flight at Universal Studios, Frank Stites plunges through unsupporting air and his body drops at a thousand spectators' feet. Tragedy before camera ends all week's festivities. Damn. Yeah. Now this is the story. Let's rewind it back to 1915, the day of the crash. To celebrate the opening weekend of Universal City, studio chief Carl Lemley orchestrated a spectacle to kick off what the Times hailed as the greatest motion picture city in the world. Thousands of guests descended on Universal, many of whom had traveled from across the country. As they walked through the studio gates, gorgeous young in... in Ingenues? Ingenues, right? It's like a French thing, ingenue. It's basically like a naive young woman who's there to give you flowers. Ingenue. As they walked through the studio gates, gorgeous young ingenues, which are young women that are dumb. (laughs) Exactly. Showered flowers on the guests while mounted cowboys and Indians fired shots into the air and whooped war cries. A who's who of the studio's directors, cast and crew demonstrated film shoots on a variety of film sets And for the first time, the famous simulated flood scene had hundreds of thousands of gallons of water washed through the back lot. That's pretty cool if you guys ever seen that. They still do that. The next day, the planned showstopper would be a simulated aerial battle above the heads of the crowd. Universal had enlisted Frank Stites, a pilot whose own high-flying bravado was already known to newspaper reading Angelinos. Stites regularly performed aerial stunts in Venice Beach and other coastal communities. Stites was also the chief instructor of the Griffith Aviator Park, which had opened three years earlier. So no slouch, this guy. For the stunts, Stites would fly his biplane over an enemy plane and drop a payload of explosives that would destroy his enemy. The bomb was, in fact, an inert bundle of cloth and the unpiloted enemy plane strung along a zip line was loaded with a primed explosive. The scheduled battle was postponed throughout the day due to uncooperative winds, and perhaps due to an extra cautious Frank Stites. That morning, Stites learned that his friend, the leading aviator, Lincoln Beachy, was killed while performing a stunt in the San Francisco Bay. The Los Angeles Times speculated that Stites was now faced with the challenge of taking Beachy's place as, quote, the world's greatest aviator. That'd be so distracting. Yeah. So his good friend and like the basically the lead aviator in the world at the time had just died that morning in San Francisco. He just found out before he had to fly this. Right. Everything went according to script until the explosives went off. Before dropping the payload, Stites circled three or four times above the thousands of awestruck Universal visitors for effect. Spotting his cue from the director, Stites cruised back around on his path towards the dummy plane and as scripted, dropped the payload and the dummy plane was blasted into shrapnel. This was also when everything went horribly wrong. To those on the ground, it appeared that immediately after the unmanned plane exploded, Stites lost control of the plane. It is not known if he was tossed from his seat or if he jumped hoping for safety. But when the plane was 60 feet from the ground, Stites plummeted to the feet of the crowd. Wow. 
Moments later, the plane crashed into a patch of trees 50 feet away. Stites was dead on impact. The Los Angeles Times reported his spinal column was driven into the skull. Immediately after the accident, Carl Lemley announced that all further festivities would be canceled and the crowds made their way home. Besides reports of the accident that hit the news in the days that followed, Frank Stites' name disappeared from the papers. Perhaps all that Stites wanted was acknowledgement, which is why his spirit still lingers on the back lot. After learning about Frank Stites and his dreadful fate, with the help of a mannequin, John Murdy created an effigy of the doomed pilot to let him know he wouldn't be forgotten. If you ride the Universal Backlot Tour, you may spot it along the route. Murdy claims that since then, the sightings of a lone man in an aerial outfit have stopped, and he hasn't heard the giggling since. Weird. Now that telling the story comes from Creepy L.A. Why would he be creepily giggling? That's what I don't understand. Maybe yeah. he loved a good joke. Maybe he was just trying to spook people. I don't know the giggling. And it was by the... Maybe it's not him. It was yeah. by the psycho house. And people that have heard that sometimes would attribute it to that. Like it's somehow manifested... What do they call those? Snappy fingers? Juggalos? Yes, juggalos. <laughs> no, Tulpa. Oh, a Tulpa, right? Yeah. That kind of idea, because it's by this famously evil house. You said other people had seen, regardless of the giggling, other people had seen man in an aerial, vintage aerial outfit. Right. So it could be separate things, Yeah. right? But the fact that maybe, maybe the giggling was some dark entity or spirit drawn there because of the, the tragedy that occurred at that, hmm. at that spot. Hmm. I mean, that's obviously complete conjecture, but interesting story. Interesting that there is an explanation for that. That spirit that's seen of the aviator. Or a possible reason. I mean, definitely a traumatic death. For sure. Poor guy. You know, what's interesting is like reading into these stories, there's actually, I'll link in the show notes. I forget what the website is now, but I'll have in the show notes. There's a list of amusement parks and places that have spirits and have had reported a very specific type visual of a spirit that has been seen from like the 30s to the 60s, say, and then it fades. And then there'll be new spirits that come in. So it almost hints at like a expiration date on a lost soul's stay interesting. on this plane until they figure it out or move on for whatever reason. Yeah. That, that was kind of interesting. Another interesting thing about Frank Stites here is he actually had a premonition. I mean, I guess it's more of just what you might say in that situation, but his wife commented to the paper that her husband had a premonition of the disaster before his tragic flight. Before he took off, he mentioned Lincoln Beachy's fate, remarking to a friend, I guess I'll be the next one. Weird. Pretty creepy. And it's kind of an all too familiar thing if you think about it. I found this from another newspaper clipping from back in the day. I think this might come from the LA Times. Frank Stites' universal stunt pilot had been scheduled to take off earlier in the day for a bit of exhibition flying. But news of the crash of another aviator, his friend Lincoln Beachy, so upset Stites that at the last moment he refused to go up. Now that's interesting. Oh, okay. He almost didn't go. Right. Later in the day, he reconsidered. Although what induced him to change his mind was never made clear. I think we might know. Stites took off, crashed, and was killed before thousands of horrified spectators. Stites' death effectively ended the celebration. The visitors drifted away, and for a long time, Stites' fall was read as an omen by many in the industry. Played down in the press, it was the single indelible image many of those at the opening would carry away with them. Activity at the factory studio went on as scheduled for the rest of the week. As one observer noted, this will sound familiar, if Universal Studio has a motto, it is this, we must never let the footage fall behind. So that sounds familiar, right? I mean, you hear about that to this day, where something goes wrong on a studio set, conditions are bad. Oh, it's right, about yeah. production, it's about meeting mm -hmm. costs. Tragic though, man, really sad. Yeah, definitely. But hopefully he found his way home. Yes. Maybe thanks to John Murdy's effigy. So if you guys are ever on the back lot, Universal Hollywood, keep your ears peeled and your eyes open. For a pilot. For a pilot. Looking for his flight path. All right, you guys ready to journey on down, or on over, I should say, to West Virginia? Yes. Here's some true tales of terror in an abandoned park defunct amusements over at lake shawnee let's do it those are some pretty awesome images there yeah guys definitely check out this park you can go here now actually so this is lake shawnee amusement park in its legends and lore and paranormal phenomena that is still highly active to this day it's a really popular place among paranormal researchers ghost hunters that kind of thing but this place has an interesting past that really sets up some of what people have been witnessing since the park is closed so the story of the Lake Shawnee Amusement Park really begins in 1775 with the Clay Incident. Oh, way back. If you really want to understand this land and, and what's happened here, we have to go back to this time period. So in the 1700s, 1775, 
Mitchell Clay brought his young family out west. Well, I guess as west as he could, which would be West Virginia at the time. They were the first settlers of Mercer County in what is now West Virginia. They established an 800-acre farm and raised 14 children. And actually, synchronistically, Chris, you brought up the Mothman. Mm -hmm. Mitchell Clay, who settled on this land with his family, was a veteran of the Battle of Point Pleasant. Oh, weird. Isn't that interesting? Weird tie-in. I'd never heard of that before. Apparently also called Lord Dunmore's War. He's also a veteran of the Revolutionary War. So he brings his family here. They've settled in, have this land, living peacefully. Now, I've heard different versions of the story as far as were they warned by the Shawnee or was this a sudden attack? But regardless, in 1783, tragedy strikes with a massacre. One day while Mitchell was out hunting, a group of Shawnee crept onto the family's settlement and killed two of the children, scalping one of the boys. They kidnapped one of the boys, Ezekiel, and then later would burn him at the stake. Jeez. Yeah. Intense. Mitchell Clay quickly retaliated with the help of other settlers. He tracked down the Shawnee allegedly responsible and killed them. Now, different versions. I actually read two different accounts in old newspapers, and one says that when Ezekiel was captured, he got his posse together and they went up the trail. They caught up to the Indians, and while they were sleeping, they waited and then attacked in the morning. And then the other version where he was burned at the stake right away, and then the retaliation happened after, and one where he was rescued. So I'm not exactly sure of all that, but this did happen. There's a statue, actually, a monument there in the town in Mercer County of the, the mother and father, Mitchell and his wife, commemorating the death of their children. <laughs> I saw that. Didn't you say that the accounts that differ, some say that the family was warned that this was sacred ground. It was a burial ground, right? That was the idea? Well, it's it's a sacred ground. We'll get to the sacredness coming up here, okay. and, which explains might explain some of the phenomena. But yeah, I didn't read in either of the accounts that I found in the newspapers about them being warned. But an article from MU, from Brett Swanser, said that they'd been warned multiple times. So I'm not sure where that comes from exactly. But regardless, the tragedy happened. You're in an area that is important to the Shawnee yeah. settling. There's going to be conflict. And we'll get to some of that in a little bit here as far as what they found. But there the land sits bloody desolate. The Shawnee eventually evaporate from this area, die of disease. And I'm sure with the conflict going on between settlers, eventually they dissipate from the area. Does the Clay family stay after that? The Clay family moves. Okay. Be hard to stay there, I would think. They move, I think, in that same generation that they leave the mother and father to another area in West Virginia. But there the land sits in its haunted state for around a century and a half. Time passes, but does the land forget? In 1926, businessman Conley T. Snydow, he bought the property to build an amusement park. Sounds like a businessman who's going to start an amusement park. Conley Snydow. Conley T. Snydow, sir. (laughs) (laughs) Step right up. (laughs) Here to sell you games and fun. So thinking the area might be a popular place for coal miners that have been flocking to the region, he decided it'd be a perfect place for an amusement park. And this park thrived over the years, complete with circular swings, a water slide, a dance hall, even a speakeasy. He also added a pond and a swimming hole complete with canoes. And by the 1950s, he'd even added motorized rides, bumper cars, even a roller coaster and paddle boats for the pond. So this place was legit. Yeah. And it was popular, according to Chris White, who is a member of the family that currently owns Shawnee. Now, in an interview with Chris White and his family who bought the park in the 80s, Chris had these things to say. This bit comes from the Register Herald, and this is an interview with Chris White. And in this interview, Chris gets into some of the, the new tragedy that happens in the 60s, which leads to the closure of the park. Despite its popularity, the park was marred by tragedy, including the drowning deaths of two boys, one in the lake, which wasn't used for swimming, and another in the pond. It was the 1966 death of a young girl on the swings, however, that led to Lake Shawnee's closure. The accident, White said, occurred when a truck delivering drinks to the park backed into the swings while attempting to turn around. That's sad, terrible. The park closed because of the death, he said. So Lake Shawnee, the site of such violence, joy, and tragedy went quiet. But in the 1980s, White's family, his now deceased father, Gaylord, had worked at the park in his youth, decided to try his hand at reopening the park. The old rides had been sold off, but the Whites decided the swings and a Ferris wheel were necessary to revive Lake Shawnee. They brought in a Ferris wheel, but the acquisition of swings, White says, is a quote, interesting story. We found a swing in New Jersey, loaded it up, and brought it back. When we got here, we ran the serial numbers and found it was the exact same swing that used to be here. Wow, that's weird. That's strange. Yeah. So the swing set that the girl had died on ends up back at the park that had left. After being sold to a place in New Jersey. Wow, that's crazy. And that's just a little preview of some of the strange happenings 
and maybe the reasons for these kind of phenomena at the park in modern times. When we come back from the break, guys, we're going to get into the experiences that people have had at the park, some of the phenomena, what it's like under the park's new management beginning in the 80s, and the haunting of the whites at the park. So before the break, though, Chris, what what's coming up in the expansion? Give us a little preview. Yeah, well, as I said, we're going to be covering a collection of some of the most bizarre and baffling police paranormal encounters. And why don't we take a listen over the break? And listeners, if you like what you hear, sign on up over at Bleafool.com. I'll see you in a sec. Stick around. Access granted. Roanoke's busy city center is abundant with striking historic buildings, fine dining, and a variety of shops and large department stores where one can while away a fun-filled day. It's a medium-sized town with crime problems typical of other like-sized cities across the country. I served on the Roanoke Police Department for 27 years, retiring in 2002 as a detective sergeant. In the mid-1980s, my partner, David Ragland, and I were working a burglary detail, patrolling in uniform in an unmarked van. It was just before twilight when we spotted a suspicious-looking vehicle moving slowly through a neighborhood. We began to tail him, thinking he was possibly casing houses, but he quickly made us and took off at a high rate of speed. We called for a uniformed car to stop him, and though he was doing 70 miles per hour, we did our best to keep him in our sights as we followed in our unmarked. It eventually became apparent that he was heading toward Schaefer's Crossing, a 100-foot-long concrete railroad tunnel. Pursuits are always risky, and never more so than when a desperate man is pushing his vehicle close to 75 miles per hour. Then, as quickly as it began, the pursuit came to an abrupt explosive stop. We'll never know if the driver overcompensated his steering or lost control in a moment of panic, exhilaration, or any number of other causes. But for whatever reason, he navigated his two tons of steel, chrome, and rubber straight into the concrete archway. Dave Ragland and I were about 200 feet behind the speeding car when it crashed. And we both watched in shock as the destroyed vehicle lifted about two feet into the air. We remained in control of our van and stopped behind the crash. Just as shocking was when the suspect driver, a white male, five feet, 10 inches, and husky, about 180 pounds, squeezed out of the small driver's window, seemingly unscathed, and dashed off into the tunnel. As longtime partners are disposed to do, we didn't waste a second talking about it, but instead took off at a dead run after the man. He was running hard, but so were we, and we never lost sight of him. We managed to close the distance and got close enough to see him clearly. That is, until he vanished. We stopped. There were no exits in the tunnel, period. We looked all around, examined every inch of the passageway, but there was simply no trace of him, none. We were disconcerted, confused, and feeling every other kind of emotion as we reluctantly headed back to the tunnel's entrance. As we neared the crash site, we could see our van and the totaled suspect car, and the driver, the suspect. It was the same man, clothes, height, and weight we had just been chasing, but he was now sitting in the car, in the driver's seat. The steering wheel and the dashboard had crushed his chest, killing him. Shocked, we managed to call for a supervisor and a traffic unit to come to the scene. We told him what had occurred, how we had spotted the suspicious vehicle, pursued it, witnessed the crash, ran after the driver, but lost him when he merely vanished right in front of us, only to find him a few minutes later behind the wheel of his car, his life crushed out. The supervisor was an older, wiser man, especially in the ways of the department and how other cops think. He told us to write our reports, but leave out all the references to us pursuing the dead man on foot. In short, don't say anything about chasing the spirit or whatever it was. David Ragland and I are both retired now and still friends. He is a very religious and church-going man. And while I have occasionally talked about that evening, he still has no opinion on what we saw, nor do I. Both of us have discussed it with his minister, but no explanation has come forth from him either. That is, no explanation other than we saw and chased the real spirit of the deceased driver still fleeing from the police. If you like that clip and you want to hear more, head over to bleefold.com and hit the expansion button. Yes. Every time we release an episode, we drop another full episode that's just as awesome as what you're hearing now. Check it out. Awesome. Awesome. Yes. Yes. 
Yes, yes, yes. Awesome. Yes. We're back, everybody. Welcome back. Lake Shawnee Park. Yes. So what happens next at this strange place? Okay, well, as we mentioned, the guy who was previously interviewed in that interview that we read, Chris White. Chris White, his father, who had previously worked at the park, bought the park in the 80s to try to try his hand at the amusements. Yeah, had it been abandoned at that point? I mean, was it a running park when he bought, when Remember, he took over? Remember, they had to buy the rides back and stuff. That's oh, that's where they right. Got the swing set from New Jersey was original. So they put a lot of the stuff back together, built it up again. The park was a success. It hit its peak, according to Chris, on July 4th weekend, 1987. They had bands playing 24 hours a day. The mission was just a buck. Chris thinks they saw like 10,000 people. That sounds fun. And what a fun time. Yeah. I need that in my life right now. But sadly, after three years skyrocketing insurance rates forced the closure of the amusement park. I would imagine those premiums would be pretty high. Closed it down again. They do try some other things in the park, which lead to a pretty fascinating and disturbing discovery, which we'll get to in a moment. But first, here's an example of some of the phenomena witnessed at the park. Of course, the eerie feeling of being watched or followed. Sudden panic attacks or having feelings of dread. The feeling of disembodied hands on shoulders. Ooh. Being pushed or tapped by an unseen force. Objects moving on their own. Shadowy shapes lurking among the deteriorating rides. Swings creaking back and forth in the absence of wind. Flitting orbs of light. Small children-sized apparitions dashing among the rusted hulks of long-forgotten rides. Spectral ghosts of Native Americans skulking about in the darkness or wandering aimlessly amongst the concession stands. So this is obviously after... This isn't in the, in the 80s. This is later. Well... It could be argued that these things were witnessed Some of these throughout things, the yeah. course of the 80s when the park was purchased by the Whites. During its heyday. And by Gaylord White, Chris's dad, who he's about to tell his own experience here coming up. But often you hear the sounds of laughter, children when no one was there, disembodied whispers that often seem to come directly from behind, shouts, strange chanting in what seems almost like some Native American language, and even screams. Now, some of that will make some sense, and we'll have an explanation coming up here. But first, let's describe an encounter that Chris's dad, Gaylord White, had while on the land with the ghosts of one of the children who were killed. Well, at least it seems like it'd be the ghost of one of the children killed in the 60s. So in this account, Chris White describes his father's encounter with the little girl who lost her life on the swings over 50 years ago. Dad was on the tractor mowing the field and he kept feeling a weight on his shoulders. He didn't know what it was. One day he felt the weight and he turned around and the little girl from the swings was there. She was in a ruffled dress when she appeared. He wasn't scared, but the only thing he could think of was, well, if you like the tractor so much, I'm gonna give it to you. So he got off and left it sitting there. <laughs> it's still sitting where he left it in the late 90s. Oh, that's crazy. <laughs> How sweet of him. I think he was just scared. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. For me, I'd be like, I'm just not going to drive this tractor anymore. <laughs> that's kind of cool. So that's you can still, still see the tractor there, at least the time of the writing of this article. At least that's his story. Well, of course. I don't think Gaylord would lie about that, Chris. Yeah. I think it's his son that said the story there, right? Yeah, it was a story he retold from his dad. Selling those tickets. Well, it's interesting you say that. You'd think that there'd be some sort of, why do they want attention for the park, right? Mm -hmm. Like they're making a ton of money off of it. The park operates now. They do rides and events, especially around Halloween. They give tours. There's like a bonfire thing they've done for years. That sounds like it'd be fun to go to. And it, I forget how much it costs or what the ticketing fee is, but... It all goes to Make-A-Wish Foundation. Oh, that's cool. They don't actually get any money from oh, it. Oh, that's awesome. So they are just there preserving the place for the place itself for it to stay Yeah, because they respect the land and they don't want it to be torn up and taken down. So like I mentioned earlier, the, the visions of Native Americans wandering about through the park and this kind of the tragedy, the energy that is felt there. You have some of the darkness too, the feeling of being trapped. There was a producer, I think from the Travel Channel, actually got locked in a concession stand. Oh, I heard about that. Could not get out, even though it was just a push door. There was no lock. It was just, she just couldn't. Even something was keeping the door closed. Something was keeping it. She freaked out so bad, she had to be taken to the hospital, apparently. Really? Yeah. What was the show? Do you know what the show was that was going on? I forget. We'll link in the show notes, but there definitely seems like there's a kind of energy there. A strong darkness for whatever reason. Maybe, maybe a curse. Well, this might explain it. The idea of sacred lands. Did this curse begin with the clays? Why were the clays killed? Well, while working on a tract of land for mud bogging, like mudding, right? Mm -hmm. In the early 1990s, the Whites made a startling find. We were bulldozing and we started finding artifacts. We found arrowheads, pottery, and pots. So we stopped. We said, this is pretty interesting. Let's get somebody out here and see what we can do. A team from Marshall University spent several years at Lake Shawnee uncovering artifacts and graves. They stopped digging when they started finding kids' graves. 
he said, adding the experts say that they believe there are about 3,000 bodies buried there. Wee, wow. The only thing they can figure out happened was they got some kind of flu or something, and to protect the rest of their tribe, everyone except for the kids and the elderly left. It's sad, but Marshall thinks that's what wiped out the Shawnee tribe back in the 1700s. Archaeologists believe the remains had been there long before settlers moved west. This discovery of sacred lands underscores a motivation for the attack on the Clay family in the 1700s. Has this curse, if you want to call it that, of the Clays continued, bringing tragedy and doom to all who have developed the land since? So the Whites live there now. They own the place, the land. They protect and maintain the land. Have they had experiences? Well, I guess the one. Mm-hmm. They hold the spooky tours, the events, which proceeds, like I said, all go to Make-A-Wish Foundation. So they don't operate the attraction at all to make money personally or for profit, but rather they do it for the love of the land. And this is the final quote from Chris White. We don't want to see it change into commercial dollar stores or townhouses. We'd rather keep it the way it is and try to preserve it. They say there's a certain power that the park possesses. We're going to let the park do as it wants. We're going to let the land do whatever it wants to do. When asked what Chris White meant by that, he just kind of smiled. <laughs> interesting. Interesting interview. We'll link that uh, video in the show notes. It's, it's interesting. It must not be at least recognized, maybe because it was a more recent discovery by the Shawnee, that mm-hmm. it's a, like a burial ground. Obviously, you would have some issues with property ownership and stuff if it was like a recognized tribal burial. Yeah, I mean, I don't, thing. I don't think that that's. Well, it doesn't sound quite like a typical burial ground. It sounds more like an emergency situation. Of, mm-hmm. I'm not sure. Yeah, exactly. The background would be interesting to look more into that, specifically about the land yeah. where the burial site is. But I don't think it's right under where the rides are and where so it would have been of the, on the, in the acreage somewhere. Yeah, because they said they were digging up for mud bogging, and that's when they discovered it. Mm. So the land in general uh, was a sacred land, apparently. But that would explain why there would be, you know, obviously the massacre early on. And then yeah, the potential. I mean, you always hear that stereotype about the Native American burial ground. Right. And, the, and of course, it's not always the case. But I do think that there is something to sacred places. I mean, you throughout time and cultures, you have the idea of curses, you know, the mummy's curse. We covered in the expansion episode recently. And the idea that, you know, if you encroach where you're not supposed to and you desecrate land, there can be consequences mm-hmm. energetically. For sure. Careful where you walk. So some of the family apparently is still at the park. Jewel White, who is uh, Gaylord's wife and Chris's mother, says she worried that her husband and her oldest son might not be happy with some of the changes they'd made, specifically, I think, with a campfire week that they had ended and changed to something. But she said that there's evidence to prove that they are happy with the changes. And apparently, it sounds like the whites, the father and the eldest son might still be there on the land. She says that the evidence that they are approving what's going on in the park is that, well, I guess there's a photo in a bus where her son had worked the park. Um, and a security video of a Ferris wheel, safety bar, unfastening in the middle of the night while no one was around. Hmm. To her, that showed her that her husband was there as well. Quote, he was very particular about the Ferris wheel. He was always worried about the lock. So to me, this was him. He said it was okay. It makes me happy, she said, watching the video with tears in her eyes. Aww. I'm just so glad to know that they're here, even though I already knew it myself. I have this so I can prove it to others. Interesting family business. Yeah. It's cool that they care enough about the land to preserve it. It's also cool that they donate to make a wish. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Like everything, that's, that's cool. Very cool. Well, let's go into the traditional theme park fun, huh? Let's get out of the darkness a little bit into the light of the happiest place on Earth. Cedar Point? No, that's my happiest place. We're talking about Disneyland here. We have some stories here. These are anecdotes and accounts from staff members, from patrons of the parks. So imagine you're in the atmosphere. Let's get settled in to the atmosphere of the parks of... Disneyland. Actually, I did have a Cedar Point one. I, I, I saw just realized that. Let's get into Cedar Point. <laughs> and then we'll go back to Disney. Cedar Point, our closest, most bestest attraction, Cedar Point, specifically Frontier Town, which is my favorite part of the park. We have this little anecdote from someone who worked at CJ's Provisions. It's kind of like a concession stand in that area. We're entering the Frontier Trail in Frontier Town. Had this little experience. Chris, do you want to explain the lore there? Sure, sure. Anyone working in that stand has reportedly felt someone there or has apparently seen someone walking by the doors when they are closed before the season begins. Legend has it that a young woman walks up and down Frontier Trail looking for her boyfriend or husband in that area. Strange things have happened in CJ's. If you leave a sponge on the sink in the fudge area and leave to go and do something, like take your break or go outside to get something and you come back and your sponge is gone. No one else has taken it 
or even seen where it went to. Then when you go back, sometimes the sponge reappears in the same place that you left it, and there are only two of you in the stand. I have first-hand experience with this since I've worked there the past 2003 season. Ooh, <laughs> disappearing sponges. I know you didn't think that was that interesting, but <laughs> if you've ever been to the park or any of these amusement parks with like a significant other, that feeling is very real. If you lose someone, we mm. were lost at a park. We were kids. Yeah. Mom and dad lost us. But the idea of this woman looking for her boyfriend yeah, or romantic. husband. Yeah. And it, you know, I don't know. It's, it's a classic kind of spirit, lost spirit. Also Frontier Town is, is a cool place. That's an awesome place. That's kind of why I just want to read it. Yeah, I, I love that setting. Let's move along. Let's move along. What about the idea of inhuman entities? <laughs> mm. Astral attractions, if you will. The idea of this, like we mentioned earlier, touched on the energetic things. Are there things that might be drawn to these places for their energy? Well, there was an interesting anecdote from Haunted Orange County blog, and this comes from Haunted Disneyland. This was submitted by Stacy B., and it's called The Watchers. I have a gift, and on occasion, whenever I enter the park and I am not caught up in the thrill of just being in Disneyland, I can sense the presence of unseen beings in various sections of the park. Like, for instance, the Haunted Mansion, every now and then, I get the feeling of a being observing me. It is an intense feeling, as well as the strong sense along Main Street that all is not as it seems in this happy place, an underlying sense of foreboding and distress. That's an interesting mm. idea. I was interested that there is just a, a layer of invisible people watching other people at the park. Mm -hmm. I like that idea. I like that she said beings too, not necessarily people, mm -hmm. but that there could be. Right. Of course, this is someone who feels she has a gift and can sense this right. stuff. Who knows? But it's definitely an interesting idea. Yeah. Well, that brings me to actually a, one of our listener stories sent in by Laura M. Oh, yeah. This is pretty cool. And it just tied in with this episode. So I thought we could do this real quick. A few years ago, I was driving on Carowinds Boulevard around 8 p.m. during the summer. I looked over at the roller coaster called The Intimidator and saw a tall winged man-like creature on top of it. It reminded me of Mothman. I pulled into one of the gas stations and stared at it for a second before I felt super uncomfortable. Then I got back in my car and drove away feeling panicked. It didn't look at me or anything. I just felt like I needed to get out of there ASAP. The next day, both the Fury, it is right beside the roller coaster it was on, and the Intimidator both broke down. The Fury was still new, so it was in the news, and it was down for the sixth time that year. I just thought that was kind of interesting. Yeah, it reminds me of, of course, Mothman and the, the Ohio. bridge. Yeah. Bridge collapse and the idea that it's an omen of tragedy or an omen of destruction, right. things breaking down. Yeah, very interesting. Yeah. Obviously, you hear Mothman stories coming from, you know, West Virginia, Ohio, because of Point Pleasant, but also more recently, Michigan and Chicago, Illinois area. Uh, but I happen to find, I'll have it linked in the show notes, a corroborating account of Mothman or some winged human-like creature in North Carolina from Phantoms and Monsters, a really interesting account. I'll have that linked in the show notes. You guys are interested. Cool. Yeah. Super creepy. Just the idea of like something, maybe that thing was sitting there sucking up all the energy of disappointment that the rides were down. <laughs> like the sadness. Hey, people that like really love rides and spend several hundred dollars and then you go and like... So it just broke them down. There's just... <laughs> yeah. I was with this girl once. She had this theory that all the parks, Cedar Point, all the rides or whatever, when they would break down because due to weather or something, it was just because they were saving money. They didn't want to employ all the people that they needed to run the rides that day. So they just didn't have them attended. So you start times you go to the park and there's like six rides that don't oh, work. Oh yeah. So if you go there for that ride and you spent that money, it's kind of, you're kind of screwed. Right. So yeah, I could see an entity sucking off. Okay. <laughs> Sucking that energy. I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, yeah. It's real. Definitely. What else we got? All right, let's do, uh, we got a little bit more of Haunted Disney. Just to keep in that feel, right? The amusement park. Haunted attractions. Okay, this is a fun one. That's just a little one. This is called Ghostly Guests, submitted to that same blog we've linked in the show notes by Jacqueline S. Once my mom and I endeavored to ride by ourselves the haunted mansion on the last ride of the night. We got in just as they closed the gates at midnight and waited a minute in the gallery to let all the other guests board first. Once some space had passed, we got in our doom buggy for our solo midnight ride. But as we rounded Madame Leota's room, we were shocked and disappointed. We looked across the room and saw full doom buggies. Men, women, and children, 
We figured they opened up the gates to let one more large group on. Oh well. When we got to the end to disembark, there was no cast member present, so we decided to linger in the mausoleum before ascending to the world of the living. And what did we see? Nothing but empty dune buggies. No people at all. We waited and waited. No one was there. True story. That's kind of cool. I like that one. Yeah. Who were they? Were they echoes of past joy? Was it a maybe time Maybe they were just dead people that are enjoying the ride by themselves. Exactly. <laughs> go away, human. Go away, living they person. They live on the lower astral plane, and then they come up when the park closes to dance among the living. I mean, if you could go anywhere as a spirit. Well, yeah. I mean, there's a reason that people illegally spread their ashes in, like, you know, the Pirates of the Caribbean ride. and Gross. I'm just kidding. You know, ghosts that linger. Why do they? Is it because these places are filled with such... Happy memories. Happy memories. Enjoy. And maybe there's something about all that energy that allows people to remain. Speaking of which, that reminds me, uh, there was a ride that came out and it's, uh, the ride is that you're being cremated. What? No. Uh Okay. So this is obviously a a scary ride. Yeah. Gross. I would never want to do that. I forget where this was. This might've been in that one in the East that has all the, the hell, the hell park. Is that in uh, Singapore? Yeah. We almost did it on the last one. We didn't do it. It's still unused, but I think that might be where they have this ride. The ride impersonates the process of being cremated. That's disturbing. There's a, I don't know, it's one of the Universal Studios, I think, in, might be Singapore or something like that. It, I also didn't have time to grab it, but it was someone who was saying that there were all these spirits that live there. Because I think there were bodies found on the island or something. I don't know if that's a whole other topic, but maybe for a part three, if you guys are interested in the series continuing. I thought this was interesting. This is, uh, these were interesting, I found, because they kind of corroborate each other, these little anecdotes, all coming from the stock room of the Star Trader at uh, Disneyland. Oh, cool. We could do a rapid round fire. Sure. This comes from Don B. The stockroom of the Star Trader that shares a wall with a section of track is also haunted. Cast members avoid going there alone and feel like they are being pushed down the stairs leading up to it. There is also a spirit of a child that haunts the area around the Splash Mountain Drop. He likes to peek over the counter at the cast member who closes the Briar Patch merchandise location there. And these corroborations continue. This is Lori W. Star Trader's stockrooms are also haunted. I always felt being watched and hearing kids' voices laughing. I remember going up to the fourth level stockroom, getting pushed, and hearing children's voices. Again, with the pushing and the voices. And hearing the children's voices. Is this Sherilyn? Mm hmm. Sherilyn B. I've worked as a merchandising stock cast member at Star Trader. The fourth floor is indeed creepy. Even before I was told it was haunted, I always felt uneasy up there. In the early 90s, a cast member named Maria came flying down the stairs after the stock boxes started to pull out by themselves. Neat. Neat. <laughs> That's a good, just classic. Yeah, these aren't too bad. Ghostly. Yeah, and apparently the, the children's voices, like the laughing and the, the, the least unsettling for some people, the when they're joyful, you know, they have this kind of I feeling. I I mean, it's sad when there's obviously like a child who sounds lost, but... It is pleasant to hear, like, laughing, unless it's like, you know. Have you ever heard a laughing child No, ghost? I have not. I'm just <laughs> saying. I, it's always pleasant. I mean, you're in a dark room by yourself, and do ch- you hear children's laughter? I don't know how, like, relaxing. Yeah, because and, you don't know if it's a fake. La- yeah. Like, An like, entity like pretending. Like a demon pretending to be a happy child. That's true. Luring you into <laughs> his wicked web of deceit. I guess I would sense it. Like, I would know, you know? Jeremy like, the censor. I'm very sensitive. <laughs> Jeremy the unfortunate censor. I cry a lot, and I would know. Is that your book downstairs? What? Sensitive Soul. Is that, is that a book down there? Yeah. No, I don't even know. Mom bought that for one of us. Like, I thought what? it was John. Really? But, mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't even recognize that, John. No, it's not mine. I don't read it every night. It's okay to be sensitive. I seriously do not know what <laughs> book you're talking about. <laughs> I'm not sensitive. Stop saying things about me. Uh, you sound quite sensitive. Right okay, now. here's the last little one. I'm <laughs> very sensitive right now. <laughs> sensitive Soul. Um, the Disembodied Voices. This was just kind of a cool little anecdote from Vico V. I worked at the Haunted Mansion, and I, man, this Haunted Mansion, I'm telling you, man, it's really haunted. And a couple of times at night, I would be at the boarding area all alone. I would hear people chatting and laughing, faintly, as if they were coming from the elevator. So I'd step up and be ready to do my lines. Of cocaine. Nice. <laughs> That's good. Right at, the, right at the punch. But nobody showed up. For the cocaine. <laughs> wow. Gorsh! Get out goofy, get it? Yeah, that was good. <laughs> oh, goofy. Hey, that's a weird synchronicity. What? On our last music, Dark Music Park episode, what skeleton did we analyze? 
Mm. The goofy skeleton. The goofy skull. Someone yeah. made a oh, skeleton yeah. and a skull of Goofy. I mean, that's not a synchronicity. We're literally talking about Disney World again in the Haunted Mansion. But is that why John did this, the well, coca- no. cocaine snort? Well, I said Goofy because I, I did the... Gorsh. So it's just coincidental. Not everything's a synchronicity, Jerry. It's all synchronicities. Um, all right. Well, that comes to the conclusion of the ride for my portion. For more stories of haunted theme park tales, we have plenty more. Goes... Some might argue, you know, even more exciting and interesting stories in the expansion. Check out part one of this series. If you're not a member in the expansion, go to bleeful.com, click on the red expansion button. Access granted. Join the expansion and sign up and we will see you there. I still have the other story. For our final story, Chris found this. I thought this was very interesting, Chris. Yeah, this is unique, I feel like. This comes from Phantoms and Monsters, Lawn Strickler's site. Uh, I call this the Healer Wheeler. <laughs> You'll see why. When it comes to amusement park or roller coaster ride, strange experiences, I thought this was really unique. This was submitted to Lon Strickler, and this is his report on it here from his site. Hello. Last week on June 23rd, my son and I visited Silver Dollar City Amusement Park in Branson, Missouri. We were having a great time, despite that I had occasional pain in my upper left arm. Two days before, I suffered a fall at work and sustained a deep five-inch laceration which required two dozen stitches. The trip to Branson had been planned, so I decided to keep my promise and went anyway. My son wanted to ride the Wildfire, which is a roller coaster-like contraption where they strap you in because you're traveling upside down at times during the ride. I wasn't too thrilled, but I had to accompany him since he was too young to go on by himself. So we were strapped in the seats. And I'll tell you, my arm was aching because of the drop-down shoulder harness. So we started off and I was enduring the ride. But after going into the second loop, I went totally blank. I only remember coming out of a corkscrew and leveling out at the end of the ride. I felt okay, but was confused. I thought that I may have fainted, but my son didn't seem to notice anything. We got out of our seats and walked off the ride. As we continued walking toward the next attraction, I noticed that I felt exceptionally well and didn't have any pain in my arm. I reached inside my shirt and touched my upper left arm. There was no bandage. In fact, I didn't feel any stitches or wound. I was Mm -hmm. so shocked that I almost fell to my knees. We stayed at the park for another half hour, then headed home. That's insane. Isn't that strange? After I dropped my son off, I made a beeline home and into the bedroom and into the bathroom. I looked in the mirror. There was no laceration, no mark whatsoever. What the hell happened? On Monday, I went to my doctor and showed him my arm. I had received the stitches in the hospital, but my doctor had the admitting report from the emergency room physician. It was right there in black and white. The doctor didn't say much, but I could tell he was wondering what happened. What could he say? I just shook my head and told him what happened at the park. He still didn't say anything, other than to say, stay well. My ex-wife thinks I'm lying but my supervisor at work saw the wound and he's simply dumbfounded. He had to file the accident report and has no idea how to proceed. I didn't know what to tell him. This is why I'm writing you. Is it possible I experienced an off-world event or something similar? I don't believe in ET or alien abduction, but I have no explanation for this. And then at this point, he asked Lon if he could somehow, you know, have a conversation with him and call him. He ended up having a phone call with Lon, gave him more information, and Lon said he's going to continue to research this experience to see if there's any, you know, I mean, give him some insight. So he had stitches and a wound, and then during the course of the ride... Yeah, he had two dozen stitches, I think he said, so like 24 stitches. And then no, after the ride, there was no evidence he of the He blacked out and gets off the ride, and his wound's gone. Stitches are gone, bandages. Just a, str- just a strange occurrence. That was super bizarre, if, if it's true. Yeah. Maybe he slipped, traded places with someone who's a doppelganger on another dimension. Anyways, that's why I call it the healer wheeler. I got that. <laughs> it's very clever. Uh, yeah, that's a weird, I mean, it's a very weird story. I'd like to know what ride it was so I could ride it and be healed of my... Yeah, you think they would use that as like a uh, attraction? Yeah. Advertisement? Neat. Very neat. Thanks for that unique story, Chris. Thank you to Lawn and Fams and Monsters. Absolutely. All right, guys. Well, that brings us to the end of our ride today at the Beliefhole Park. Nice. Let us know if you guys like this. If you guys enjoyed this experience and would like to see more episodes, I think it'd be kind of a cool series, uh, especially this time of year in the winter. Yeah. You know? It's a nice break to get away from the cold. Yeah. And explore some of the strangeness in happier places and warmer climates. If you've had your own strange experiences at theme parks or fairgrounds or carnivals are coming up, 
let us know. Absolutely. And again, check out the expansion. We got some uh, great stories in there along these lines at the previous episode. That episode will be linked in the show notes. So check that out. Yeah. And as far as the fresh new expansion episode, come on over and join us for strange experiences with law enforcement and the paranormal. Some great original stories in there. That's going to be fascinating fun. Without further ado, I think we have some new members to thank. Don't we? Yes, we do. And it's you guys that keep the show growing. It really means a lot. Those of you who can't sign up, don't have the funds, we understand. If you could leave a review, if you like the show, anywhere you can, Apple Podcasts, iTunes. Share with your friends. Like us on Spotify. YouTube. Subscribe on YouTube. We're going to be putting out more content on there this year. We're working hard to do that too. So thank you for all the support. It really means a lot. Yeah, it does. Keep the hole digging deeper. All right, guys. You ready for some new members? Yeah. All right. Welcome to the hole. New member, Spidery Tea. Yummy. (laughs) (laughs) Not drinking that. Good spider sounds. Welcome in. Uh, Welcome to the hole, Ryan Juice. Welcome in, Ryan. Great to have you. I've got some juice for you, sir. Yes, we do. Squeeze up those lemons and limes. Another expansion member coming down the pipe. We got Joshua Arnold. Hey, Josh. Hey, Arnold. Feel how soft my skin is. Welcome to the hole. Followed by Joshua is another Joshua. Yes. Joshua Sevdi. Hey, Joshua. Yes. Two Joshes makes a bush and a hand. So the same makes me happy. Yes, great. Good amount of Joshes. Kevin Walker, come on down. Come on Give down. a little jog use down Use those legs you like to use, Kevin Walker. Oh, yes. All right, welcome. Maggie Mason. Maggie Mason jar. M&M. Sweet or salty. This mm. <laughs> is so, so bad. Claudia M. Mendoza Cobb. What a name. That's a mouthful. Big as a Cobb salad in my mouth. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> Maria Fanol. Fanole. Fanoele. Welcome, Maria. Welcome yes. to have you. Happy to have you here. Welcome to be here. Welcome to be here, John Kamatsu. John yes. Kamatsu. Welcome in, sir. Hugs for you. Big hugs. Welcome. New member, Montana Summer Rodriguez. Ooh. Montana Summer. We'll enjoy that summery sun. I don't know. <laughs> Welcome to the whole Chris Davidson. Chris yes. Davidson. All right. Get yes. on in here, buddy. Yes. Man, it's been yes. good. You're the best to have you. Awesome. <laughs> okay. Thank you for coming and joining us, Gav Shepard. Right. Welcome, Gav. Lead your flock to us. Yes. This is Meet Bob with a B. <laughs> hey, Bob, Bob with, with a B. B. Nice to meet not you, Bob brother. Bob with a, with a P, like Bob. Come on down, sir. <laughs> and not to be forgotten. <laughs> Last but not least, Chi Zhang, maybe? Chi Zhang. Welcome in, sir. Welcome, Chi Zhang. Thank you for letting us try to pronounce your name, and sincere thank you for your support. Yes. Yes. It really means a lot to us. You guys are keeping us going in the hole. Eventually, we can do this full time one day. That's our dream, that's our hope, that's our prayer. And all you others that are sitting in the silence, get the f in. Oh! (laughs) Just kidding. But yeah, do though, because that would be great. Because then we keep (laughs) going. We're going to bury ourselves. Alive. In the hole. And record it for you. It'll be our last live stream. Suicide by dirt. That would be awful. Yeah. I'm sad. On that happy note, <laughs> it's cold here. We it's hope you so guys like this break from the cold, this break from winter. Yeah. After the summer of theme parks. If you don't want to lose this vibe, yeah. Join the if expansion. If you don't want to lose hope in life. Join the expansion. Join the expansion. Listen to the uh, the first part of this episode, or the first, I should say, edition of yes. Dark Amusements. And for those expansion members that have already heard it, you guys seem to enjoy it. Listen again. And don't forget the new episode. And of course, the new episode. It's here for you. Coming from Chris's research hole. Yes. Weird. <laughs> All right, guys. All right, guys. Thank you so much for being here. And you guys take care out there. Stay warm. We'll see you next time. On the, the Leaf Hole. hole.